Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks for the invitation to be here today. I want to start by talking to you about a girl whose name was Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs was born in 1813 in North Carolina. For the first six years of her life, she lived in a comfortable home with her parents and brother, but what she did not realise was that she was a slave. When her mother died, Harriet learned she wasn't free. At the age of 15, her new master, uh, Dr James Norcombe, started pursuing and harassing Harriet while Norcombe's wife oppressed her. Seeking to protect herself, Harriet turned to a white unmarried lawyer and bore him two children. Her master, Norcombe, then retaliated by sending Harriet to a plantation to work as a field hand. But not wanting her children to become plantation slaves, she ran away before they could join her there. Here she is, separated from her children. With the help of some neighbours, both black and white, she made her way to her grandmother's home, having escaped the plantation. And for the next seven years, Harriet lived in a tiny cubbyhole underneath the front porch roof. The confined space was apparently nine feet by seven feet, with a sloping ceiling only three feet high at one end. And she shared her hiding place, she says, with rats and mice. During that time, she wrote to Norcombe, asking him to sell her children, but he refused. However, the children's father ended up buying the boy and the girl and allowed them to stay with Harriet's grandmother. But remember, she was a runaway slave. So she could, she had to hide even from her children. She would squint through a peephole, hoping to catch a glimpse of them playing outside. In 1842, Harriet escaped to the north and two years later her children joined her. Still, she was in danger of being returned to slavery under the laws of the time and complete liberation did not come until she was 40 years old when her employer paid $300 for her freedom. Harriet Jacobs knew what it was to live in slavery and she knew what it was to be redeemed to be set free for someone to pay the price. She wrote a story of her life and it was called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And this is the the concluding sentence of that book. She said, Reader, reader, my story ends with freedom. Not many of us probably can identify with that sense of being redeemed We don't have that same sort of physical deliverance that we can sort of identify with. But Christians through the ages have understood from the scriptures that redemption is a key category for understanding all that God has done for us. You probably know some of the songs. There is our Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Maybe you know this old hymn. I grabbed a hymn book from... Our church is on the way out. I will return it in due time. And uh, it's a hymn that I had sung at my wedding, actually. To God be the glory. The second verse goes like this. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Friends, uh, today we're going to be looking at the whole 
the whole topic of redemption, all that God has done for us so that we might be set free from the guilt, the penalty and the power of sin. If you can open up your outline there, you can see the fourth statement of the EU's doctrinal basis printed in the middle of the page there, hopefully help you set out. And when you look at that statement from the doctrinal basis printed there, I want you to notice it doesn't just focus upon the fact of redemption, it doesn't even focus just on the fruits of redemption, but it focuses on the means of redemption. And if we're going to talk about the means of redemption from a biblical standpoint, we have to talk about the cross of Christ because it is Jesus' death that lies at the heart of redemption. Redemption always comes at a price. It's in the very meaning of the word to redeem that a cost or a ransom is involved. And the price for our redemption was the death of Christ Jesus. Listen to the way that three different authors in the New Testament put it. First of all, Paul from Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Jesus Christ we have redemption through his blood. Or Mark writes, For the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or the writers of the Hebrews, Christ entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. If we're going to proclaim the means of redemption to a university, to a world, then we have to proclaim Christ crucified. But see, any time you proclaim Christ crucified, you run into problems. Because that message about Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save the world, to most people that makes no sense at all. It didn't in the Apostle Paul's day. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22-23, he says, For Jews demand signs, Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And frankly, the message of the cross of Jesus doesn't fare any better today. Uh, Professor Sir Alfred Eyre was an Oxford philosopher. This was his comment on the Christian faith. Christianity, he says, rests on the allied doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible, and morally outrageous. Or Reverend David Edwards, a prominent Christian author in England, wrote this about evangelical teachings about the cross of Christ. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth hearing. He said, Many of us Christians find it impossible to understand the idea of God punishing himself. Evangelical atonement theory suggests that God has done something which would be crazy or wrong for a good man or woman to do. A judge would not be respected if having convinced a, uh, convicted a criminal and sentenced him to death or imprisonment for life, he underwent execution or served the sentence himself. He would be thought of to be perverting the course of justice. A father or mother who declared that the children could not be forgiven until he or she had appeased and satisfied his or her wrath by committing suicide might be reported to a society for the prevention of cruelty to children and admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Self-punishment of this sort by a mentally healthy person is inconceivable. Now, of course, God's sense of justice must be both stronger and more justified than any human judges or parents. But precisely because God's justice is the justice of holy love, it seems all the more difficult to think that he could do something which would be condemned if done by a good judge or good parent. This evangelical theory of atonement, he says, belongs to a world which we do not know. It belongs to a world where sacrifices propitiated the wrath of gods. The world which we have entered into, either through education or through daily experience, culture, insistently teaches 
that such ideas are either ridiculous or else actually blasphemous. So there's the criticism of what the EU holds to be redemption. Intellectually contemptible and ridiculous, morally outrageous and even blasphemous. Those are not small criticisms. But as evangelicals who hold, as the EU's doctrinal basis says, to the supreme authority of scripture, our question, I guess, is always not what does culture say, what do the scriptures say? What does God teach us through his word about the means of atonement? I don't know if you've ever attempted to do research, like, you know, research within, say, the context of the university. The key thing is always asking the right question. If you ever want to really annoy somebody who's doing, you know, a research degree, a PhD, or something, just say to them after they've been going for about 18 months, so have you got a question yet? The reason it'll annoy them is because they might not have. They probably won't have. Because a lot of the art of doing research is getting the right question. When we come to look at the scriptures, it's important to get the right question. What is the actual problem or question that drives what God has done in redemption? What is the right question that then will open up for us what God is doing at the cross of Jesus? I think, and you can talk to me later about this, I think the, we could put the question like this. How can God righteously save sinners? I think that's the question. How can God righteously save sinners? How can he maintain his righteousness yet save sinners who deserve his wrath? I mean, we can see how God could righteously condemn sinners Sinners deserve wrath and judgment, so God can do that. Yes, sure, he maintains his personal righteousness in that way. But how could he righteously save sinners? Now, there's wider and narrower versions of that question. The wider question would be something like, how does God bring about his intentions for creation? That would be, the wider, uh, that would be a good, helpful, wider question because that would drive us back to the very beginning of the Scriptures the creation accounts, and see how God's whole intentions will be brought to bear through the cross of Christ. But I want to stick today just to that that first question I gave. How can God righteously save sinners? Three quick observations about that question. First of all, it's a very important question because I think that's the question that actually drives all of salvation history. If you want to understand Abraham, Moses, the nation of Israel, the coming of Jesus, his death and resurrection, his promised return, the new creation. If you want to understand the big picture of the Bible, you need to understand that question. How can God righteously save sinners? Secondly, it's an important question because it, it, it only arises because of God's love. See, if God wasn't love, he wouldn't want to save sinners. Presuppose behind the question is what the Bible tells us, that God is love and he wants to save. My third little observation about this problem of how can God righteously save sinners is, at one level, it's not really a problem at all. It's, it's a problem for us. It's a problem in our minds that we can't understand how will God righteously save sinners. It's not actually a problem for God. It's not as though when Adam and Eve sort of took the apple in the garden, suddenly God went, oh my goodness, I'd never imagine what will I do now? And suddenly he finds himself in a bit of a tricky situation. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that we're chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. So it can't be that suddenly God found himself in a spot of bother when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
There's no tension within God himself between mercy and justice, between love and wrath. If there is a tension between those things, it's in us, in our ability or inability to integrate them, not within God himself. So I guess at one level the question that I've posed is a very human question. How can God righteously save sinners? It's a question about our understanding what God has already done. He has righteously saved sinners. But how does that work? Well, what do the scriptures say? We're going to look at three passages. If you've got your Bibles there, it would be really helpful if you could open up to Romans chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to look at sort of three different passages that will build up a bit of a picture of Scripture's answer to this question. I'm going to spend most of my time here in this section. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. The first point I want to make here in, our answer, to, uh, in answer to our question is that God's going to righteously save sinners by the sacrifice of Jesus to avert his own wrath. The sacrifice of Jesus to avert his own wrath. Let me read from uh, Romans chapter 3. I'm reading from the NRSV. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice there are a couple of things in that passage as you look at it. Verse 24, redemption is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement, it says in the NRSV, by his blood. Now, by his blood is just a way of referring to his death. Verses 24 and 25 talk about God displaying his righteousness with respect to sin. Prior to Jesus' death on the cross, God had overlooked sins previously committed, but now he's showing his righteousness by dealing with them. The key phrase is there in verse 25 where Jesus is described as a sacrifice of atonement. Now the same phrase you'll find will come up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Now it's interesting, if you have different versions it may say something different as I read that out. Yours may not say sacrifice of atonement. If you're reading the King James Version or the uh, English Standard Version you'll find him said the phrase, uh, you'll find the word propitiation. To propitiate someone means to avert their wrath by offering them a gift. You avert their wrath by offering them a gift. What we're reading here is that God put forward Jesus as a way of averting his own wrath against sin. Jesus' death is a sacrifice that averts God's wrath from sin. Well, how does Jesus' death death avert God's wrath? Uh, Turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. We're trying to build up a picture here, put some passages together, put the jigsaw together to work out this answer to the question, how is God going to righteously save sinners? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says there, He himself, talking about Christ Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. Now this is one of those verses in the Bible where you really want to have a bit of a grasp on the Old Testament 
to understand the full significance of what's being said. It talks about Jesus bearing our sins. What does it mean to bear sins? Now that phrase, bear sins or to bear iniquity, as it's sometimes translated, comes up at least 14 times in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. And each time it means to bear the penalty for sin. To bear sin means to bear the penalty for sin. To suffer the penal consequences of sin. Let me give you an example. You might know the story of how God rescued his people, uh, people of Israel, from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. You might remember how they travelled through the desert to the end of the pro- edge of the promised land and then they sent spies into the promised land to check it out. Most of the spies came back saying, no way, we can't go in there, they're too big and scary. Look, that's my own translation. Now God wasn't pleased with their lack of faith. And so this is what he says to them in Numbers chapter 14, verses 32, 34. Just listen. The Lord says, But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day a year you shall bear your iniquity. 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. For 40 years they'd have to bear their iniquity. That is, they would have to bear the consequences, the punishment for their sin. To bear sin means to bear the punishment for sin. Now the passage that stands directly behind that verse from 1 Peter chapter 2 is the servant song of Isaiah 53. So you might like to turn to Isaiah 53, the third passage we're going to look at. Isaiah speaks of one who will come, a servant of the Lord. And bearing in mind, we just talked about sort of bearing sin, have a look at what is said there in Isaiah 53, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53. Through Isaiah, the Lord says, The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. See, twice we hear there that this servant, who Peter will go on to identify as Jesus, will bear the sins of many. That is, he'll bear the penalty for their sin. And the picture is that he'll bear their sins instead of them bearing them. A substitution is involved. Have a look at verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he, this servant, who we know is to be Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' death as our substitute, bearing the penalty for our sins. How does Jesus avert God's wrath? He averts it from us by bearing its weight for us. That's how he averts God's wrath from us. By bearing the penalty for our sins himself. But how come? How come he can do that? Wasn't that one of, some, one of some of the complaints that I read out earlier from uh, the professor and from the reverend who had complaints about the evangelical atonement theory? Wasn't part of the problem that it didn't seem right 
that someone else could bear the sins of another? How come that's okay? How come that's fair? How come that's right? How can he substitute himself in where only I deserve to be? I, the answer, I think, comes from the, that comes from the Scriptures is that Jesus not only is our substitute, he's also our representative. I'm just going to read you a few verses, say from Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self, says Paul, was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. See, Paul doesn't say that Jesus was crucified just instead of us. He says, actually, you were crucified with him. You died when he died. It wasn't just that he died in your place. What was happening to him was happening to us by faith. There's an identification between Jesus and those who put their faith in him such that when he died to sin, you died to sin. When he was raised to life... You were raised to new life too. Well, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. We're convinced, says Paul, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The answer the scripture gives to how can God rightly save sinners? God sends forth Christ Jesus to die as a sacrifice, to avert his own wrath from us, by him bearing the penalty for our sin in our place as our representative. So when he died to sin, we died to sin. Now, 1988 was probably not a year that many of you will remember. Hand up if you were born in 1988, like that was your actual year of birth. Anyone? Okay. Uh, For some of you, you may have been in utero. That was a pretty significant time of your life, I guess. Uh, It was a big year for Australia. It was our bicentenary. Um, maybe it was the year you were born, maybe it was the year you spoke your first word, maybe you started school. It was a big year for me. I was actually in first year at Sydney Uni, which is a bit embarrassing. It was my first year at Sydney Uni and it was my first year in the EU. And I went to my first EU conference, the sort of ancestor of annual conference. And when I was there, I bought a book. This is the book. And it says in here, 1988, Macon. Uh, it's a book by John Stott, The Cross of Christ. Still one of the best books on the cross around. And I remember reading it that year when I was in first year uni and just being amazed as John Stott opened my eyes to what the scriptures have to say about the cross. And how does he summarise the Bible's answer to our question? Remember the question? How can God righteously save sinners? His answer is this. He says, divine self-substitution, sorry, divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. You've got to think about it. Divine self-satisfaction, God satisfying himself, maintaining his own righteousness. How? Through divine self-substitution. He comes in and takes our place, stands in for us. Now, understanding the cross as a sacrifice is not the only way the death of Jesus is presented in the scriptures. It's presented in lots of other ways. It's presented as a victory over the spiritual forces of evil. It's presented as reconciliation, as God's wisdom, as God's glory, as the defining example of love to follow, as the model for discipleship. And out of all those, the one that's probably least comfortable for our world is the notion of Jesus as a sacrifice. 
That's the one that sort of is the least culturally comfortable for us today. And some have actually said that it's a metaphor for what Christ has achieved that's now irrelevant. Just because culturally we're so far distant from it, it has no meaning today. Well, I want to say that's wrong on two accounts. The first is principled. We should keep proclaiming Christ our sacrifice because it's true. It's gloriously true. The scriptures teach it, we uphold it, and we're going to proclaim it. But my second reason is pragmatic. We should keep proclaiming Christ as our sacrifice because I think the concept of a life-giving sacrifice still actually does have real cultural currency. It still means something to people today. A while ago I came across this story. Jack Kelly was a foreign affairs editor with USA Today. And this is what he reported. He says, We were in Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia in East Africa, during a famine. It was so bad we walked into one village and everybody was dead. There was a stench of death that gets into your hair, gets onto your skin, gets onto your clothes and you can't wash it off. We saw this little boy. You could tell he had worms and was malnourished. His stomach was protruding. When a child is extremely malnourished, the hair turns a reddish colour and the skin becomes crinkled as though he's a hundred years old. Our photographer had a grapefruit which he gave to the boy. The boy was so weak he didn't have the strength to hold the grapefruit. So we cut it in half and gave it to him. He picked it up, looked at us as if to say thanks and began to walk back towards his village. We walked behind him in a way that he couldn't see us. When he entered the village, there on the ground was a little boy who I just thought was dead. His eyes were completely glazed over. Turned out that this was his younger brother. The older brother knelt down next to his younger brother, bit off a piece of grapefruit and chewed it. Then he opened up his younger brother's mouth, put the grapefruit in and worked his brother's jaw up and down. We learned that the older brother had been doing that for the younger brother for two weeks. A couple of days later, the older brother died of malnutrition and the younger brother lived. I remember driving home that night thinking, I wonder if this is what Jesus meant when he said there is no greater love than to lay down our life for someone else. Friends, we were that deathly shell of a child. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But Christ Jesus sacrificed his life so that you might live. He faced not just death. He faced God's just and fearful wrath for our sin. See, I'm pretty certain that if I had to, I'd be willing to die for my family. And I'd like to think that I'd be willing to die for one of my friends. Would I die for a stranger? Would I die for someone who I knew hated me? Would you? We'd like to think so. But let me ask you this question. Would you go to hell for anyone? Would you suffer the wrath of hell for anyone? That's what Jesus did for you. Our wonderful representative and substitute, friends, see, we have a sacrifice story to tell.
uh, I remember when I was here at uni, I managed to get permission to go and look up the EU archives. They had some up in uh, Fisher Stack. And I went there and I was reading the handwritten report of the very first mission the EU ever had. And uh, many of you may know some of the stories, but one of the details I hadn't heard before was at the beginning of the meeting of the very first day, all, the whole EU who were present, it wasn't as many as we have today, the whole EU who were present came down the front and stood up, turned around, faced the assembled mass from the university and sang a hymn to the university. That was how they started their mission. I don't know what hymn they sang, but I was thinking it could have been to God be the glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. That's our job. That's the task that we've identified ourselves with in the EU. To proclaim the glories of God which we see in redemption that he works in his son Jesus. Now it's always a privilege to speak here at the EU but I must admit that when I was uh, looked at the particular point from the doctrinal basis on which I was being asked to speak I did think in part that maybe I'd drawn the short straw. Um, See... This really is the fruitcake statement in the pack. You know, of all the nine doctrinal, this really is the fruitcake statement. Now, I better explain what I mean before Ryan comes up here and just pushes me aside. I mean fruitcake, see fruitcake, at least the way our grandmothers made it, is always densely packed. It's chocked full of all sorts of bits and pieces. As I looked at the nine statements in the doctrinal basis, it seemed that this statement on redemption probably had the most ideas crammed into it. See, look again at the statement printed there on your page. Look at the last eight words. You've just dealt with all this stuff about redemption and sin and, and the sacrifice and representation. And then he just throws in there, who he, she, whoever it was who wrote this thing, of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Like he tries to slip the incarnation in at the end of this point. <laughs> Couldn't they have put it somewhere else? Why does this statement on redemption have to include a statement about Jesus' incarnation? Why does it matter that he's fully God and fully human? Why, why, why say it here? Well, it's no accident that the DB includes a statement about Jesus' identity. Christology, or the study and statements about the person of Christ, is actually vital to understanding redemption. If we don't get Christology right, we don't get Jesus right, who he really was, then you're going to get the cross all wrong. How serious is it? Well, if I can quote from... John Stott here, he says, at the root of every caricature of the cross there lies a distorted Christology. As every time someone gets the cross wrong, he reckons underneath it they've got Jesus wrong. They've misunderstood who Jesus is. So why is it vital to affirm that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine to understand redemption? Let's just think about it for a minute. First case, say Jesus wasn't fully human. What would happen then? If he wasn't a human being just like you or me, well then there'd be no way he could actually represent you, would there? If he wasn't like you. How could he substitute himself in for you if he's not like you? 
That's the point that the writer of the Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus had to become like us in every respect to be our high priest and to make a propitiation of himself for sins. So it's essential that Jesus be fully human. He must be incarnate in flesh like you or me to represent us, to substitute for us. But what would happen if he wasn't fully God? Well, if he was not God, then he had to be some innocent third party who God was punishing instead of us, which doesn't sound very just. You know, God saying, hey, you, Michael Kwan, you deserve death. Die, Ryan. Like, (laughs) hello? That's not going to make any sense. That doesn't seem very just. But see, if Jesus is fully God, then God is not punishing an innocent third party by taking the punishment himself. He's taking the punishment himself. Remember how John Stock put it? Divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. When we grasp that Christological point, when we see who Jesus is, then we begin to understand what God was doing in redemption. And the fallacies in some of the criticisms levelled at this teaching about the cross start to be exposed. In fact, uh, John Stott comments about people who make some of these accusations about the cross and he says, there's no crudity here in what God has done to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. Now, I could go on to talk a lot about what I've called there the glorious fruit of redemption. It's there in the uh, beginning of the passage, uh, sorry, the beginning of the doctrinal basis. The two passages you might like to look up Later, first of all, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, talking about forgiveness from God as flying from redemption. Forgiveness is that freedom from sin's guilt and penalty. So you can see forgiveness fits into the first part of the doctrinal basis there. The other passage that I'd like to explore with you if I had more time, because I really think it's so significant for Christian living, is Romans chapter 6, where Paul describes how we're set free from sin's power, picking up on the other point there at the beginning of the DB. We're set free from sin's power through the redemption we have in Christ. See, whereas outside of Christ, he says in Romans 6, you're enslaved to sin. Through our death with Christ by faith, we've died to sin. We're freed from sin's enslaving power. There's lots of great, glorious fruit there to explore. I'm going to have to leave that with you. I want to just move finally to no other means. See, there's one word in this statement about redemption that I haven't made anything of. It's that little word, only. Can you find it there? Put a circle around it. It says, Redemption from the guilt, penalty and power of sin only through the sacrificial death as our representative and substitute of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Why only? What point is being made? I take it that it's trying to say, look, redemption comes this way and no other way. It comes only through the work of God in Christ, not through any work of mine. It's consciously and explicitly denying any other means of redemption. There's nothing we can do to achieve our own redemption. Do you remember statement three from the doctrinal basis? We believe in the universal guilt and sinfulness of man since the fall, rendering man subject to God's wrath and condemnation. See, is there anything that you or I could possibly do to turn that situation around? Can we redeem ourselves by sheer human effort? by good intentions, by intellectual pursuit, by self-flagellation, by mystical experience, by escaping our sense of self, by becoming one with the universe, by just being a good bloke. Can you do anything to turn that situation around? 
No. As I said back in Romans 3, we need God to secure our redemption, for we can't do it ourselves. I have a daughter who's just turned three, whom I love very much, so I want you to understand the story rightly. The other day, uh, she was attempting to take off a singlet and get dressed. I was going to bring in a singlet and demonstrate this, and then I thought better on She starts taking off a singlet and she gets it up around her head and it sort of gets stuck there and suddenly there's a lot of frustrated grunting and I say to her, do you want some help? She says, no, I can do it. (laughs) And the grunting and the yells yells of frustration continue and I, I offer again, do you want some help? No, I can do it, she says to me. And for good measure, don't laugh, not funny. (laughs) I could do it. Finally she gets it off her head, but now, she gets it off her head, but now the thing that's sort of wrapped around her shoulder blades in her back. See, I did it. (laughs) But 30 seconds later, there's more screams of frustration. Not because of the singlet, but because she's now trying to put on trousers and she's putting two feet into the one trouser leg while the other trouser leg is flapping in the breeze. I could do it, she says. See, our attempts to redeem ourselves before God are every bit as futile and the results are every bit as pathetic. But we're the human beings who say, oh no, I can do it. I can get there. I don't need your help, God. The truth is you can't. The great deceit that we can do it on our own is just that. It's a great deceit. It's a belief that in the end will only end in tragedy, facing God's just condemnation for our sin. That's why, friends, we must keep preaching the cross, proclaiming the redemption that God has secured, what he has done, because we can't do it. And we have to expose that lie. See, the centrality of God's work in Christ on the cross has been a key distinctive of the evangelical student movement. The EU here at Sydney Uni, many of you may know, has its origins back in the KICU, the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, back in Cambridge in the UK. And there's a famous story, many of you may know it, that in 1918 the student Christian movement in Cambridge was making overtures to the KICU that, hey, we should join forces. And the president of the KICU... And the secretary went to meet with the SEM committee in the rooms of the secretary of the SEM. And the secretary of the KICU at the time, the precursor to the EU, was a guy by the name of Norman Grubb. And this is what he said. He said, after an hour's talk, I asked Rollo, the SEM secretary, point blank, does the SEM, the student Christian movement, put the atoning blood of Jesus Christ central? And he hesitated. And then he said, well, we acknowledge it, but not necessarily central. And then the Kikyu president and I said that that settled the matter for us in the Kikyu. We could never join something that did not maintain the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as its centre. We parted company. And you know, 12 years later, under the work of Howard Ganesh, the EU started in the bell tower in the main quad. And 75 years later on, here we are today, reflecting once again on the centrality of God's work of redemption at the cross. What God was doing there at the cross when he redeemed humanity stands at the centre of God's purposes for his creation and it has to continue to stand at the centre of the EU's life and proclamation here at Sydney Uni because, friends, there is retention in nothing else and this university needs to know that. 
And my prayer is that it will continue to stand at the centre of your life because the cross of Christ was that fiery furnace in which your identity was forged as a beloved child of God. I pray that God will strengthen you to continue to proclaim that redemption that he's won for us until he returns.